All right. Let's do this. Let's go. If you uh, have your Bibles, start moving towards Ezekiel. Some of you know where that is. Some of you don't. I'll let you struggle with that one for a while. That's a little fun. Just kind of go in the middle of your Bible. Cruise a little bit to the right. You start hitting all these kind of prophet-sounding names, and eventually you'll hit him. I want to thank you, first of all, for praying for my wife and I for last week at the uh, Pastor's Wives Conference of Campus Ministers. It went really, really well. Uh, As I told them, it was really interesting uh, being in a room full of women as the only guy. Actually, there was one other guy there, and I thank the Lord for him. The RUF director was in the room, and he and I were the only two men amidst all these ladies. It was a great, great weekend. Uh, We looked at what you have already heard, most of you. We looked at fear, a life beyond dread. Uh, Had wonderful conversations before, during, and after on Saturday, talking with uh, what I called them, really the, well, let me tell you this way. I have one of my favorite men, uh, is a guy named Dr. John Hanna, and he was a church history prof, and he still is at my seminary that I went to. And one day he confided in me, and we were talking. He said, he's a real popular speaker. He's highly sought after. He's probably, every year he gets like the favorite professor award or the most sought after. He speaks all over the world. He goes into areas that the church is not necessarily above ground. I mean, he's a, he's a gutsy, where's Virginia? He's a gutsy grace kind of guy. I know you like that word. That's why I said it for you. (laughs) But he said to me, he said, Jeff, you know what? I have wanted and aspired to my whole life, and it hasn't been to be any of these things. Now, if you know Dr. Hanna, you know this is true. This is not that, you know, that false humility. You know what I have aspired to? Gaston. Uh, (laughs) He said, I have aspired and have wanted and have sought to be a foreign missionary in some faraway land who dies there known but to God. And God just wouldn't let me do it. So he puts me out in front of people. I don't necessarily like people. If you know them, that's kind of the way it is. What, what we did last Sunday, you by sending me, and that's what I want you to see. When that happens, it's us. We're in this together. What you're seeing and what happened last Sunday is, is really looking at the unknown heroes in the church, pastor's wives. And what a privilege it was to talk to them and to walk through, in many ways, very deep and dark valleys that they experience. So thank you for sending me. It was an incredible time. Uh, loved doing it. So now we're back. We're done with that series. And we're on to another series. And you know what the series is on? Scripture. And I know some of you are thinking, hey, wait a minute. Don't most of us get the Bible here? I mean, we're kind of, we're into the Bible thing. We believe it's God's word. We believe it's fundamental to Christianity. We believe it's central to our growth and central to ministry, right? All of us are pretty convinced of that. So why in the world do we need to hear a series on Scripture? And what I want to say to you is just hold on. Hold on, I'm going to answer that question in a moment or two. But a more pragmatic reason is I've been asked to do another conference, and this one is for many of you that are going to be heading down to Panama City in May 
uh, for the RUF Summer Conference. Many of you are familiar with that? Okay, and we're going to look. They've asked me to preach on Scripture. So the pragmatic reason is we're going to do a series on Scripture here first. And then we'll have one down there. So those of you at Baylor, I'm sorry. I don't know if you're going to the first week or the second week. But if you're going to the first week, you're really going to get Scripture down real well. It'll be a good, good series for us. So what I would like is for you, even now, as you pray for us as a church, as we look at the Scripture, I want you now to be thinking about we are partnering and a part of ministering to, I think it's around 900 college students, 1,000 college students that are going to hear the exact same thing. So you can start praying for them right now. Okay, that will be descending the beaches of Panama City. All right? All right. So we're starting our series. And the way we're going to start our series, we at Redeemer have driving visional images that are this. We have driving visional images that are like pictures to be hung on the walls of your imagination. So that you see the vision, not just explain it. So that it captures your heart and your imagination, not just deduce it and dissect it. Okay, and there are several very popular Redeemer driving visional images. Many of you are familiar with the, uh, what is it? The fountain of living water image. How do you glorify a fountain of living water? Many of you are familiar with the Grand Canyon, and many are familiar with the empty hands, and many are familiar with God meeting us at 1st Street and 2nd Street. Many of you are familiar with God breaking in, God coming down, the downward movement of God into our life. Not an inward and not an upward, right? These images drive the vision to hang pictures on your imagination and inflame you to see what God has called us to and what God has called us to be. Now, perhaps my favorite is the uncaged lion. And what I'd like to do is, in beginning our series on Scripture, I want that to capture your imagination. Now, there are you old-time Redeemer folks. You know who you are. Would you allow, as you hear it again, would you allow the Scripture to awe you again? As you hear it, Would you allow the scripture to give hope to you again? You long timers, you ones that sola scriptura and you know the Greek and you know the, what is that language? Latin. Thank you, Virginia. I'll pay you later. All right, here we are. Lions, what are they? Lions are kings of the jungle, aren't they? You know they are. If you've ever seen a lion, it's clear they are kings. I mean, you look at them, it's just awesome, awesome beauty. Sheer, raw, violent power. I love lions. A single male lion can consume 75 pounds of meat in one meal. A single male lion can drag down a 600-pound zebra. No problem. Now, several years ago, when my kids were at the span of, we got, that's how I remember every birthday. If I get one, I get the, all of them because they're in two-year increments, nine, seven, five, 
three, we were in Pittsburgh visiting Grams and Pops, who now live here. And we were at the Pittsburgh Zoo. And while we were going to the Pittsburgh Zoo and working up towards the lions, you work up on a hill. And it moves up towards the mound of lions. Well, we knew where the lions were well before we got there. Because two of them started fighting. And when they started fighting, they started... And I mean to tell you, any of you ever heard a lion roar? I mean, raise your hand if you've heard a lion roar. I don't mean on... What's the Disney thing? Lion King. Thank you, Virginia. You want to just... Do you want to just stand up here with me? I'll just... And you can do finish it for me. I'm not talking about Lion King. I'm talking about not a tape recording, not in a movie, not on, you know, Grand Adventure or whatever the new planet Earth and all that kind of stuff is. I'm talking about in real life, Heard a Lion. If you have, you know what I'm talking about. It will literally turn your stomach inside out. Your knees will immediately get weak. It will turn the most courageous person's heart into mush. I know this because I was one of them that was out there that day. And when that lion roared, instinctively you saw moms cling to their children, grab their baby strollers just reflexively. And every guy tried to steady his legs while it was happening. Now, what if I did this? I rolled a cage on the stage, huge cage with a huge lion in it. And we're all looking at it, and it's nice being in the cage, right? And I reach over to the latch, and I unlatch the cage, and I swing the thing open, and out steps the king of the jungle. Now, brothers and sisters, you tell me, who needs to be protected? The lion or you? Oh, we know the answer to that, right? Because the lion will tear you to pieces. The lion will devour you. The lion will eat you up. And as this lion eats you up, we're going to say the scriptures are like an uncaged lion. Every time we come here and we hear the priest word, every time you open the Scriptures, you're letting a lion out of the cage. And he comes and he devours you and he comes and he eats you up and he tears you to pieces. And as he tears you to pieces, he's actually saving you. And as he rips you to shreds, he's actually raising you from the dead. He's actually gladdening your heart. He's actually pardoning you and forgiving you. He's actually breathing new divine life into you. He's actually recreating you. As He tears you to pieces, He's putting you back together. But the Scriptures are an uncaged lion. They don't need to be protected. You don't have to defend the Scriptures. You need to be defended from the Scriptures. Because all heaven is unleashed when the Scriptures are open. Now, brothers and sisters... Do you have that view of the Bible? That when you go to the Bible, it's your refuge, it's your help. 
light shines forth. Your comfort comes thundering towards you. God actually gives himself to you. Is that the scriptures for you? Well, guess what? If it's not, it really doesn't matter. Because the lion will convince you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We are looking at Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. I know this is a very obscure book. How many of you have heard a, a sermon on Ezekiel? Oh, wow, more than I thought. All right, good. Let's look at Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. That's a real gutsy response, isn't it? Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, put breath in you. You shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So then he does this. I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. I just want to point this out because I'm not going to spend time on it. Don't be confused by this two-parter. This is nothing more than the same thing that happened when Adam was created. First Adam was formed, then he was filled in with the breath of God. So the picture right here is what? A recreation of man. We got a new creation going on here. That's what's happening here. So then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, and we are clean cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves, raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And, you will, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is an uncaged lion. For me and for all of us. So, O oh Lord, let the lion out of the cage. May you devour us. May you consume us. May you tear us to pieces. For we know that that is life. And that is our hope. 
And that is our healing. And that is our salvation. And that is real living. So, oh God, give what this passage is powerfully picturing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the church father Jerome said, As for Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, who can fully understand or adequately adequately explain them? The beginning and dealing of Ezekiel, the beginning and ending of Ezekiel, the third of the four prophets, are involved in so great obscurity that like the commencement of Genesis, they are not studied by the Hebrews until they are 30 years old. Got that? Now you've got to love that kind of uplifting optimism as we get into Ezekiel, don't you? I mean, we're standing at the doorway to Ezekiel and one of the great church fathers said, Ah, oh, who can understand it? There is hope for us, though. It's not as bad as, as Jerome thought. You know why? Because I'm over 30 years old. <laughs> so I was able to study it this week. So those of you under 30, guess what? You've got to take it from me. All right? You ready? Now, some of you are wondering, Jeff, why would you pick Ezekiel to begin a sermon series on Scripture? I mean, why don't you do one of the old-time favorites, the one we all know, those of us that have grown up in church a lot, the ones we got memorized in our little Bible verse memory pack. You know, what is it? 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Right? Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a great verse. Outstanding. Well, why don't you do that one? Why don't you do Hebrews 12.4, right? No, 4. <laughs> a little dyslexic there. 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing through to the very heart of us, discerning our thoughts and intentions of our heart. Why not that one? You know, why not Psalm 119? Why not so many others? Why Ezekiel? You know why? Because Ezekiel, in its mode of revelation, hold that, I know that's confusing, I'll explain that. Ezekiel, in its mode of revelation, is targeting your imagination. That's why. Do you know what I mean by mode of revelation? I want you to think a mode of revelation like the water of divine revelation water comes in a mode or a bucket and what we got here is a certain kind of bucket that holds the water of divine revelation the bucket is the mode the bucket is the means the bucket is the form it's the vehicle it's the God ordained genre literary style that he uses to communicate his word all right? Now, we know the Bible's made up of various buckets that carry the water of the Word, right? We know we got what? Raw propositions. Where do you go for that? Virginia? Yeah, you go to Romans. Argument upon argument upon argument. It's proposition, 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 deduction. Therefore. And, but, for, therefore. Right? That's how the epistles usually work. Argument, argument bucket. Proposition bucket. What about the Gospels? What about most of the Bible? What kind of form? Narrative. Narrative, Story. History in real life. Movie stuff, right? 
Then you go into, say, the wisdom literature. What kind of bucket is that? I just gave you the hint. Wisdom. What if you're in the prophetic literature? What kind of bucket? Prophetic. Well, what if you're in the Psalms? Hymns? Poetry? Do you get the point? Now, what's unique, what's unique about Ezekiel is that the form is technically called apocalyptic or visional bucket. Does that make sense to you? Now, you really want to get geeky, we'll call it the prophetic apocalyptic bucket. The prophetic visional form. Got it? All that means is, is Ezekiel is a visual experience. It's visual revelation. You know what it's like? It's those books you loved when you were a kid. The picture book. I still gravitate towards those. (laughs) Right? I'll look at books and I'll say, you know, diagrams, how many pictures. Oh, man. Five chapters, all writing. Yeah. Give me a picture. Ezekiel is visual revelation. If I was to say it another way, I could say this. Ezekiel is video revelation. Xbox 360 revelation. High definition Samsung Blu-ray DVD revelation. Ezekiel is a visual experience, so I'm sorry, you anti-TV people. God loves visual, visual revelation. It's part of the DNA of his own word. Okay? So what I want you to do is I want you to look at verse 37, verse 1. Look how it even begins. Right away we see God's mighty hand shows up. Do you see the picture? I mean, it begins with God's mighty hand showing up. And God's mighty hand does what? Seizes Ezekiel, carries him away. What a picture. A mighty hand of God comes in, grabs Ezekiel, and carries him away. Now, the picture is very, very important there because is the picture this? Ezekiel strolling calmly with God in the garden in the cool of the day, the most pleasant time of the day, and just chatting away with God? Is that the picture? Or is Ezekiel screaming, I'm going over Niagara Falls in a barrel! You tell me, which picture, which image happens in verse 1. The mighty hand of God grabs him and carries him away. Makes a difference, doesn't it? So do you know what we need from God's word above everything else? Do you know what this generation needs? You, me, the church today. Do you know what we need more than anything else? In God's word, from God's word, above all things. Do you know what you need? You need a topical memory system. No, no, that's not what you need. You need you need a better quiet time method. And you need more personal discipline with whatever method you use. No, 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 that's not. You need more systematic biblical doctrine taught to you from the scriptures. This one's going to burn a lot of us. You good Calvinists? No, that's not what you need. So let me get the other hot side so you feel better. You need 
You need another secret for someone to write a book on and sell millions on the Christian life. That's what you need. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it could help. Mortgage, insurance, light bill. Do you know what you need? Do you know what I need? Do you know what this generation needs more than anything else? You need your imagination reached by God. You need your heart captured and captivated by God. Not an eternal principle. Not how to save your marriage. You need a vision of God. And so do I. That's why we're doing Ezekiel 37. Because the bucket is visual itself. All right? So just think you're playing Xbox 360, teenagers. Because this is what we are doing this morning. You are going to be visually stimulated in the imagination of your heart. Okay? Here we go. So, to begin, though, here's what we have to do. To begin Ezekiel 37, to have your heart reach, to have your imagination reach, you and I have to understand who the first hearts were targeted were. Let's say that differently. Who were the first hearers? Who is God after originally in this text? What people is he targeting? What imaginations is he trying to reach? Who's he after? If we get that, then we will get and we will be ready for our hearts and our imagination to be reached, okay? So if we bypass who the original ones were, you're not going to fully get it. The visual will be black and white. You won't get the full color. You won't get the high definition feel and visual experience. You'll get, you'll get something, but you won't get the whole thing. All right, so let's do this. In this vision, what we got to see is God takes Ezekiel to a valley. Now, if you're Ezekiel, that's your first clue. This ain't good. Okay? God seizes him, mighty hand, carries him away, plants him in a valley. As soon as his feet touch ground and he realizes he's in a valley, first clue, this ain't good. Because in the Bible, personal visional encounters with God are mountaintop experiences. I mean, it's, the, it's the, the glory and splendor and breathtaking, knock the wind out of you, encounter and beauty of God hitting you full in the face. Right? It's mountaintop stuff. It's the light and life stuff. It's the stuff that inflames you. It's the stuff that invigorates you. It's the stuff that I'm alive stuff. It's the, well, where did God take Moses when he encountered him? A mountain. Mount Sinai. You know, and Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and that's usually called the law division of the Bible. And then, well, it's the second great division. Well, Elijah, he's the prophet, the greatest prophet that ever lived until John the Baptist came, right? Now, where did God meet with him? Virginia? A mountain? Yep, Horeb. Many think it's the same mountain. So where does God meet with Ezekiel? A valley. Now, don't miss this. 
Not just anywhere in the valley. Where does it say? The middle of the valley. What's the middle of the valley? That's the lowest place in the valley. Gulp. If Ezekiel missed the first clue, it's very, which is highly unlikely. He certainly got the second one. The hand of the Lord set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Now, don't miss what God is doing, what he does next. God takes Ezekiel on a personal tour through the valley of bones. I mean, do you get this picture? God himself puts his arm around Ezekiel, and they're wading through the bones. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, how long did this take? You know, do you wonder if God said, there's Jehoda's bones. Come on. There's Beth's bones. Come on. What do you think that was like? What kind of visual experience was that? Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen bones before. They all look the same. Whitish gray, different shapes and sizes. But one thing's real clear, no matter if you've seen a bone of a dog or a steer or a human, human bones. Now you've got a whole valley full of human bones. What's very, very clear is you've seen one, you've seen them all. They're all dead. In fact, when the tour is over, Ezekiel, this is what he says. All he can say was, there were a lot of them. Look at your text. There were a lot of them. And then what does he say? I mean, you see there's two beholds. That tells you what struck him about his tour. There are a lot of them over the surface of the ground. And what's the second thing he says? And they're very dry. You know what that means? They're very dead. And they've been very dry and very dead for a long time. That means they've been sitting on the surface for a long time. That means there's no flesh on them. That means there's no ligaments connecting them. That means they are bones literally scattered everywhere. And they're dry. They've been there for a long time. And then God gives the point of the whole passage. The bone tour. He tells you the point right here. He gives the whole point of the Torah, the whole point of the passage. He asks, what, he asks a question. He turns to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, are you ready? The answer to that is the point of the text. Whatever the answer is, that's what God's driving at. Whatever the answer is to that question, that's what God is going to reach you and me and the original hearers in your heart in your imagination with. That's what he's driving at. That's where the whole text is going. All right? So it's not as difficult as we seem. You know, we're trying to wade through, as Jerome wades through, the, how can you discern it? That question, God is leading everyone who reads this. The answer to that, brothers and sisters, the answer is the point. The answer is to capture your heart and the imagination. And we're not ready for it. Right now, you couldn't handle it. We've well, got to find out first who are the first hearers? Who are the first ones God's targeting? We've got to figure that out first. So let's keep going. Who's God trying to reach? Well, the answer is found in verse 11. Let's look at that together. You ready? Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. There's the answer. Did you get it? You got it? 
Okay, well, let's go in a little bit more. Maybe this will help. In the ancient Near East, nations would often form treaties and covenants with each other. Okay? And they were political and military-oriented in nature. What would happen is you would have a superior nation called a suzerain or a lord nation. And they would form a covenant or a treaty with a weaker nation called a vassal or a servant nation. And they could be forced. Nation comes in, conquers, you have no choice. You are bound in a covenant or a treaty with that nation. Or they could be voluntary. For alliances and and, uh, military protection, you align yourself with a more powerful nation if you're a weaker one. Okay, do you see how that works? You with me now? It's not that complicated. Now, what happens is this. What happens? Let's say a weaker nation decides to rebel against a powerful nation. Says, let's break the covenant. Let's break the treaty. What will happen? What will the powerful nation do? Well, you know that, right? Set up a UN Security Council meeting. You know, walk into the meeting, swagger, shake your finger at everybody in there, the guilty party, make grand speeches, perhaps add another sanction or two. Now, they didn't do that in the ancient Near East. What they did is that that larger, superior nation would come for a visit. And they would spill blood on all the guilty ones. And so after the screaming, after the gore, after the slicing and dicing of swords, and the beheadings, and the missing body parts, and the wailing over lost loved ones, after all of that, what that conquering nation would do was take those lifeless bodies and scatter them out into the open so they litter the face of the ground. They would be dishonorably littered over the ground. No proper burial. They would be a monument of bones for everyone to see. Here lies the cursed. Here lies covenant breakers. And so will all who break covenant with us. Do you get this picture? Those bones littering that field are a bone monument to cursed people, covenant breakers who have rejected the suzerain, the Lord of Lords himself. And verse 11 tells us it's the whole house of Israel. That's why in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, which consisted of ten tribes, the Assyrians came in, wiped them out, dragged them off into exile. But the Assyrians had an interesting foreign policy. It was a lot like Stalin's in the 40s and 50s. It was a mix-you-up kind of foreign policy, a soup kind of foreign policy, not a tossed salad, a soup. And so what they did is they mixed people all within their people because they were creating simply an Assyrian 
So you lose all your ethnic and national identity, any distinction upon you. If you were in Stalin or in the Soviet Union, you'd have Kazakhs living up in, in Belarusa. You'd have Tajiks over in Kazakhstan. You'd have Koreans up in Russia proper. They were mixed all over because you're now the one united Soviet. Well, that's what the Assyrians did, and that's why they're called the Ten Lost Tribes. They just disappeared. And that's why the whole house of Israel also includes the original target audience that's being written to. In other words, the people that are hearing this letter are Ezekiel and the Judeans, the southern part of Israel, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the ones when the kingdom split the southern part, which contained Jerusalem and the temple. And they're hearing this vision. They're getting this message while they're in Babylon in exile. That's the target audience here. So don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Don't miss the impact of what's happening here. The heart God is reaching here. The heart God is reaching then. The heart God is reaching now to us who read this text. The heart is those of us left for dead. The heart that's being reached here are the cursed. The covenant breaker. All who are left for dead. The ones who say, my soul is drying up. My hope is lost. I am clean cut off. That's the heart that's being reached. Now, don't blink that away. You know, the the blinking away goes like this. Wow, that, that perceptive prophet has found himself in an incredible pickle. What are we having for dinner tonight? You know, don't be distracted. Don't start thinking about dinner right now. And also don't yawn it away. Blah, 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 sin, sin, sin. I hear that all the time in church. Tell me something. Give me something that really matters to me. That I can use for my life this week. Don't yawn it away. And don't, don't depersonalize this either. Don't abstract it. You know, like, oh, I know this one. This is the doctrine of total depravity. I can't wait to talk to my free willy Arminian friend Susie and argue this passage with her. Don't do that. Let's talk about being left for dead for a moment, all right? Let's talk about who are these people. Notice that this is coming from believing and unbelieving Israelites in exile. You catch that? Believing and unbelieving Israelites in exile. So this is a universal condition for believing people and unbelieving people. So if you're sitting there saying, well, yeah, this is for the the unbelieving friend of mine. No, this is for you. This is for you too. So some of you know this. Some of you have been building your life around being the best. This is, this is if you were to say, what's Jeff Hatton's profile? What was his history, his whole life? What's, what's the one that gets him being the best? What's yours? Being the best in what? Homemaker, mom? The best mind in your department? The favorite teacher? 
the student that everyone loves, the best international, international financier. You might have to wait on that one for a while. What is it? Being the best dad? The one that has the most fun with his kids? Are you building your life around that? Being the best in something? Are you, are you building your life around the next? What is it? The next pleasure. The next stroke from someone. The next relationship. The next achievement. Those of us that find ourselves building our lives around those things ultimately come to a point where they realize your soul is drying up, your hope is fading, and if you're not a Christian, you know you're cut off from God. Right? Others of you know this because you've been suffering silently. I mean, you're suffering silently in a rough marriage. You're suffering silently just overwhelmed on parenting and where your children are and how you deal with them at this particular stage. You're silently suffering with where you are in life and where you are in your relationship with God and where you are with feelings of depression and insecurity. You know what this is like. Your soul is drying up. Your hope is fading. And then the question that you're asking is, did God cut me off? And then others of you, you have no idea what I'm even talking about right now. (laughs) Right? I mean, come on. You regularly go to church. You regularly read your Bible. You regularly pray. You are faithful in your job. You pursue meaningful relationships. You work hard in what you do. You provide for your family or you take care of your family as the main nurturer. You go about your business. This is your life. You live life as God wants you to. You're doing all you're supposed to do. So you don't understand what this passage is talking about. What does it mean to be left for dead? What is that? Right? But you know sometimes in your life in certain situations you feel this pressure. Can't name it. You don't know where it's coming from, but you just you feel this pressure. And if you were just for a moment to just kind of step back and pull this pressure out and say, what is that? What is that pressure? You probably would describe it this way. You'd say, it feels like it feels like the weight All my life and everything in my life rests on my shoulders. My well-being, my relationship with God, my relationships with others, my job, life stresses. I feel like it's all on me. Right? Okay. Now, why are we doing this? Why is this so important? As I watch the time tick away here. Good night. The reason why it's so important for you to see this and understand who God is targeting in this passage is for this reason. And I'm probably going to have to end here and we might have to have a part two. You need to feel this personally and you need to feel this deeply because God is targeting this type of person. 
And we've got to understand who this type of person is because if we understand it and we don't depersonalize and abstract it and say, it's the person next to me, but it's actually me and you begin to feel it, then you'll know. And then you'll be targeted with what God wants to give your heart in, his, in your imagination, okay? And the reason why is this. My wife and I saw an incredible movie last week. It's called Defiance. Anybody seen that yet? Okay, it's rated R. If you go see it, don't go see it because I went and saw it. Well, the pastor went and saw it. And then get all offended at all the R stuff in it. And then blame me. Right? Make your own grown-up decision about the movie, please. Don't let me be your conscience, please. And if you're the easily offended type, don't go until you change. <laughs> Fooled you, didn't I? Let me, can I let you in on a little secret? Here's a little secret what God's doing with me. As each year goes by, he's bleeding my people-pleasing idol. Well, I, yes, praise God. So you know what that means? He's enlarging my heart more and more with the desire for his glory alone and your good. So I don't care if I offend you more and more. Okay? All right. As I was saying, my wife and I went and saw a movie last week called Defiance. It's based on a true story. Three Jewish brothers, Tuvia, Asiel, and Zeus, Bilski. There's some Russian in it, and I loved it. I, I realized I remembered a lot more than I thought I forgot. These three brothers narrowly escaped the German death squads that rush into Belarusia in 1941 and start systematically exterminating and murdering thousands and thousands of Belarusians, Jews. They lost their parents. Two of them lost their wives. One of them lost their... The only one that had a child lost their only child. They thought they had put them in a safe city, and news got back to them that they were massacred. Now, what started as a desperate fight for survival turned into an extraordinary mission to save Jews in Belarus from extermination. It's phenomenal. So Tuvia, the oldest son, I don't want to ruin the whole movie for you, so I want to take you to one scene that absolutely took my breath away, made my wife cry. It was incredibly powerful. Tuvia, the oldest son, is the leader of now 1,200 Jews hiding with them in the forests of Belarus. Okay? Now, the particular point of this scene is that they are being hunted by the Germans, and they've come to the edge of the forest, and they've got Germans breathing down their back, ready to slaughter them, and they've got a body of water in front of them and planes circling to massacre them if they try to go into the water, and it is total dark chaos. 1,200 people screaming, hopelessly crying. It's darkness at its most desperate. People calling out and saying, Tuvia, what are we going to do? Tuvia, tell us what to do. Tuvia, save us. What are we going to do? And then the camera zooms in on him. And you watch one man hear all these cries. You see it in his eyes. You watch one man taking it all in and realizing the overwhelming, hopeless situation they're in. You watch one man in his heart feel the responsibility for 1,200 souls. So what does he do? 
What does he do? Well, if he was Rambo, right, he'd go face those Germans. He'd single-handedly wipe them off the face of the earth. I'd jump out of my seat cheering him the whole way. Right? He's not Rambo. If he was Batman, Batman, what he would do is he would get between the Germans and the, and the Jews that he's protecting, and he'd have his cool armor on, and the bolts would be bouncing off of him. And then he'd have this high-tech weaponry and gadgetry that he would do out there while the, the Jews escaped unnoticed. Right? Heck yeah. But he's a man. A simple man. And so what happened to him is the overwhelming weight of it all crushed him right there in the movie. And he sank to his knees at the end of himself. Brothers and sisters, this passage is taking you to that place. And this passage is saying to you, whether you realize it or not, you are at the end of yourself. And some of you need a little more convincing than others. Some of you are closer there than others. And this passage is pushing you to your knees. So that it can do this. At the end of yourself, here's how we're going to end, y'all, and I will do the implications next week. You never know what God's going to do in these times, so you've got to go with whatever he's doing. At the end of yourself is this. When you get to the end of yourself, there is divine life unleashed in the Scripture. At the end of yourself is divine life in God's Word. That's the point of this passage. I mean, son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel gives the lame answer, right? He gives the answer of the teenage son or daughter who's afraid of giving the wrong answer to their dad. Oh, dad, you know, right? And God gives the answer himself, and what does God do? God says, preach, Ezekiel. Preach to the bones, Ezekiel. Preach my word to these bones, Ezekiel. That's the answer. And do you see how absurd that is? I mean, they're dead. Do you see how absurd it is for this guy to be asked to preach to dead bones? They're dead. They can't hear. And what God is saying, you know what? He's saying to you, he's saying to the original exiled Israelite, you know what? The deader it is, the better. The darker it is, the better. The more hopeless it is, the better. Because the night is light to me. So he starts preaching, and as he's preaching, he doesn't see it at first, he hears it. What does he hear? As I preached, there was a sound, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. Now, I bet, as a preacher, I can relate to this, I bet at that moment, he got into his preaching. <laughs> you know, he's probably going, blah, 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 bl
what he's going at that point. He's preaching away, and there before him stands what? When he's done, I don't want you to miss this. Brothers and sisters, those of you that are in a hopeless place, and those of you are that feel like you're cut off from God, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, what you've got to get is change happens on the spot in this passage. While Ezekiel is preaching, while the word is going out, this army of dry, dead, cursed, covenant-breaking bones stands before him as a living, breathing, made-alive-to-God army. On the spot. Not a prolonged process. On the spot. Change. So that's how we're going to end. Part two is going to be this. I didn't give you Jesus. So how am I going to give you Jesus here? That's supposed to be at the last part. We're out of time. What shall I do? I'll preach him. Here's what we do. What we need to realize is that who took the tour? Who led the tour in the bones? God. Do you, get, do you get the theological implication of that? You know what that means? God went into exile with the Israelites. Where did this revelational vision come to? Didn't happen in Jerusalem. Didn't happen in the temple. Where is it happening? On the banks of a river in Babylon? God goes into exile with his people. Now, we know that what Jesus does is he does more than just go into exile with us. He actually trades places with us. He goes out into the valley of bones alone and takes your place and bears the full monumental curse of God, the full monumental hopelessness and destitution of being separated from God. And that's the life that pulses through this passage. God gives divine life because he goes into exile with you. And not only in that, in Jesus, he takes your place. So you come alive. You are forgiven. You are made right with him. You will begin to be put back together. You now have hope. You now are not cut off. You now are in the presence of God. Amen.